If you've ever heard Alistair Begg preach, you know that he quotes song lyrics quite a bit. And I'm kind of like Alistair in a way. I'm always hearing a song in my head. People say things and it's like a little song goes off in my head. And unfortunately, when I sing them, they don't sound like they do in my head. But, <laughs> but believe it or not, I'm going to sing for you this morning. And I'm not a singer. And this is what I'm feeling right now. It's too late to turn back now. <laughs> or maybe, baby, baby, now it's too late. And so that's what's going through my head. Because I was given this teaching assignment months ago. And these uh, truths that are rumbling around, 1 Samuel 13 through 15, have been rumbling around in my head ever since. Um, and the one that... the main truth that I've just has been pressing on me is Samuel's words, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of the rams. So in God's providence in the last week, I've heard sermons or teachings here at Grace about some of the truths I'm going to talk about today, hence those songs going around in my head. Should I have started over? Should I do something else? It was just too late. I couldn't. And so about a year ago, I taught on Psalm 51. And just months before that, we studied Hosea. And this same truth is echoed in both. The Lord delights in our obedience. In fact, he demands it. Do you get uncomfortable with the fact that the Lord demands anything from you? I get it. It's my nature to bristle when someone tells me what to do. And if the Lord had not given me a new heart, I'm sure I would be thinking the very nerve. You're telling me that I have to worship you in a certain way. I can't just do it the way I want. The truth is, I wonder if that's kind of what God is thinking about me. Natalie, how dare you disobey me? How dare you question my actions or my goodness? And this calls to mind God's conversation with Job. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what basis, on what were its bases sung? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning songs sang together and all the sons of God? shouted for joy I feel God's words to Job bearing down on me reminding me who he is and why he is so deserving of all the glory and honor and praise so today I'm going to talk about so many things worship repentance obedience grace and it seems like when I want to talk about one thing the Holy Spirit presses on me to speak about others as well because if you give a mouse a cookie so let's talk about worship. We were made to worship. In fact, it's the very purpose of creation. The central element of sacrifice and worship is our adoration for God. And the very first question, the shorter catechism, is what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And I really like the children's catechism. It says, who made you? God. 
What else did God make? God made all things. Why did God make you and all things? For his own glory. How can you glorify God? By loving him and doing what he commands. Why ought you glorify God? Because he make me, made me and takes care of me. And there's a part of me that feels like I could just stop right here. God made you for his glory. He loves you and cares for you. And it should be your delight to obey him and honor him. The very last verse in Psalms says, Let everything praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. When we worship and adore God, we bring to our heart and mind what he has done and who he is. In corporate worship, we hear scripture read and preached, and we pray and sing and celebrate the Lord's Supper, and our hearts are invigorated. Our passion for God's gr God grows, and our faith strengthened. It is good to be in the house of the Lord with fellow believers. Listen to these words that Peter wrote. This is in 2 Peter 1. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him, who, of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the, that is in the world because of sinful desire, for this reason... Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Let those words sink in. We are partakers in his divine nature. He shares his glory with us. And we are to make every effort to supplement our faith. Not some effort. Every effort. This is not burdensome. This is for our benefit. Many of you that know me know that I'm a big C.S. Lewis fan. Um, in fact, I have a dog named Aslan. And, uh, and so um, there's a scene in Prince Caspian where the Pembensies have come back to Narnia and they're in this battle, but they haven't seen Aslan yet. And um, Lucy kind of thinks she's seeing him, and she ends up, you know, kind of following and hearing him. And uh, when she meets him, she says this, Aslan, you're bigger. That is because you're older, little one, answered he. Not because you are? I am not. But every year you grow you will find me bigger. Aslan had not grown, but Lucy had. I pray that our hearts will explode as we grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ and that we find him bigger and bigger and bigger. God cannot create God, therefore his creatures cannot exist in perfect sinlessness as he does. So the crown of his creation, man, sinned and Saul and Israel are sure giving us a picture of that in these chapters so I'm going to do a little recount of what happened I'm not going to hit everything but let's look at some of the main events but I want us to actually go back and think to the end of chapter 12 twice at the end of this chapter Samuel warns the Israelites not to turn aside 
not to turn aside from serving the Lord, and not to turn aside to worthless things. He tells them to serve the Lord with all their heart, which we know from Christ's teaching is the first and greatest commandment. Then he tells them that the Lord will not forsake his people, that he is pleased to make them a people for himself. But there's a warning at the very end. Samuel tells them if they still do wickedly, they will be swept away. They and their king. Now, I admit, this sounds confounding. He just told them that Yahweh would not forsake them and that he was pleased to make a people for himself. Now he says, if they continue in their wickedness, they will be swept away. What are we to make of this? Well, based on events that happened but had not yet occurred um, in this point in history, we know that the nation of Israel and its king are swept away for a time for exactly the things God warned them of, for wickedly turning aside from serving God and going after empty things. The Babylonians will soon have their sights set on them and without Yahweh to protect them. Well, things won't go so well for the Israelites. Remember, this is a God who keeps his promises and sin has consequence. In chapter 13, Saul takes credit for defeating the Philistines when it's really his own son, Jonathan, who did it. The Philistines are mad, and they muster up quite the army. The Israelites are scared, so they run and hide, and Saul is feeling pressure. So he thinks, aha, you know what I'll do? I'll offer up a couple of offerings. I know Samuel told me to wait till I get here, but I really haven't talked to the Lord about this situation, so I think I'll just go ahead and make these offerings. I mean, really, he told me to wait, but he couldn't have understood the situation I'm in. Everyone is scared and hiding, and the Philistines are preparing to annihilate us. Remember, remember Samuel speaks for God. Remember back in chapter 9, then we learned that Samuel was a seer and that everything that Samuel said came true? And remember all the things that Samuel told Saul about that was going to happen, and they happened exactly as he said? Remember? Oh, yeah. Well, now Saul has become an amnesiac. So he forces himself to offer up a sacrifice. He forces himself to worship Yahweh. I don't think so. I don't think anyone forces anyone to sin. And this is the same rabbit foot theology that the elders of Israel did with the ark. They're just going through the motions, and their heart was far from the Lord. This, is an ad this attitude um, is a caution to us and our pharisaical tendencies. God wants our heart, and performance apart from it is detestable. And one thing is for sure, our circumstance is never an excuse to sin. In 14, while Saul is hanging out by the pomegranate tree, Jonathan gets his armor bearer and goes to face the Philistines against what seems like impossible odds. Two men, one sword, two cliffs, and a whole bunch of Philistines. Jonathan has hope. Jonathan doesn't presume upon the Lord's kindness. He's not sure what the Lord would do, but he's not going to hide in the cave with his daddy any longer. He has hope that the Lord will save them. He says nothing can, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or few. Now, this is a man who understands the Lord. This is a man who understands the sovereignty of God. 
This is a man with true faith. So Jonathan and his armor bearer kill a bunch of Philistines, and it causes quite the stir. Saul calls for the ark or the ephod, I'm not sure which, and then he changes his mind. I don't know. He got in a hurry. I'm not sure what happened. But anyway, the Israelites come out of hiding, and they fight. And guess what? The Lord saves Israel that day. Then Saul makes some crazy oath about not eating, and Jonathan doesn't know it, and he eats some honey, because remember, this is the land flowing with milk and honey. And Saul now is willing for Jonathan to die over breaking his crazy oath that he didn't even know about it. But the people basically say Saul's crazy, and that they love Jonathan, and they ransom Jonathan from death that day. Okay, 15. This starts out with the whole Amalekite story. God, through Samuel, tells Saul to devote to destruction the Amalekites. Well, he doesn't do it. He saves the king and all the best stuff for himself, and then he decides to build a monument to himself. Not to God, to himself. He doesn't understand God. Not only does he build this monument to himself, he tells Samuel that they spared the animals to make an offering. To whom? To the Lord, your God, not my God, your God. Now, this is a man who doesn't understand the holiness of God. This would be sort of like you and I stealing something, keeping some of it for ourselves, and then getting caught and then saying, oh, yeah, I mean, I was really just doing it for this great charity. I don't know what the problem is. Saul is saying, I was, I was doing it for your God. I mean, I may have kept some of the good things for myself, a cow, a bracelet, but it was really all for your God. Saul's heart was deceiving him. He doesn't understand the point of worship. Let me pause here and say that God does not hate formal worship. He instituted it. The purposes of the Old Testament sacrifices and aspects of our corporate worship now were implemented to tune our hearts to sing God's praise, not to pat us on the back for our performance. The Lord had already told Samuel that he had rejected God from being king. Because why? Because he had turned aside from following him. Remember back in chapter 12? Samuel had warned them. He had commanded them, don't turn aside from following the Lord. Don't turn to empty things. Well, here it is. The Lord, I mean, Saul has turned aside from the Lord and his heart, his heart just wasn't in it. It seems he really never had a heart for the Lord and therein lies the problem. God abhorred Saul's worship. You know what God doesn't abhor? A broken and contrite heart. David tells us in Psalms, the sacrifices of God, Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And in Isaiah 66, the Lord says, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Repentance is at the heart of worship. For how can one not fall down in adoration for the one who is the remedy for our guilt, for our sin? Ladies, we must pray for a heart like this, a heart after God's own heart. Surely Saul did not understand this. He was hardly contrite. He did not regard Yahweh's words. He was concerned about himself. He was busy building monuments to himself and begging Saul to go with him 
back to the elder so he could save face. No, Saul was not a man after God's own heart. But back in chapter 13, there was a promise of one who was. And on this side of scripture, we know of one even greater than David. It is in this one that our hope is found. For even if we live a generally obedient life, a life that is a living sacrifice, which Paul begs us in Romans 12 to live, we know that it will not be perfect. Even though if by the grace of God we have been given a new fleshy heart that desires to walk in God's ways, our old sin nature is battling against us every day. We cannot meet the demands of the law. But Christ did. It is by his flawlessly obedient life and death that we have hope. Not in what my hands have done, but in Christ. Christ had to live a perfectly obedient life. He had to be the lamb without blemish. His obedience made the sacrifice possible and effective. And he was, he was Philippians tells us that he was obedient even unto death. Now, for those in Christ, there is no condemnation. How can this be? It seems too glorious to be true, only it is true. Today, we have pastors filling pulpits and TV and social media that are much like the sons of Eli and Samuel, profaning the beauty of God's word with an anything-goes attitude. We hear truths like God wins or rest in Christ, truths that are so important and well true, but they've been distorted to mean things like universalism, or God doesn't care what you do. Be true to yourselves. You do you. Love is only love. It makes us almost afraid to proclaim the good and wonderful news of Christ's perfect life lived in our stead, but we can't recoil. We need to teach the truth without distortion. We need to preach to ourselves grace and law, walk hand in hand. Alistair Begg, in one of his sermons on 1 Samuel 15, pointed out the fra- that the phrase obedience of faith occurred in both the first and last verses of Romans. We are to have an obedience of faith. We must worship in spirit and truth. We must guard our hearts and be diligent lest we turn aside from serving the Lord. Listen to Paul's words at the end of Ephesians 3. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit and your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all of the ages, forever and ever. Amen. Amen.